So I want to make some sweeping generalizations and kind of grid out some things. So culture is something that if you look at it, changes what, what they would say every uh, 20 years or so. So the definition of pop culture would be just that. It's the latest fad right now. It's kind of a very thin thing that kind of rides on the surface. Um, but it, it, give it two or three years or four years and, and it can blow away. Uh, your, your kind of teeny bopper musicians fall in that category, right? Or the latest and greatest fad of what hairstyle or, or wristband or, or whatever it is. It's kind of pop culture. Uh, culture, which is deeper than pop culture, is more rooted. It's, it's the way we're kind of crafted and wired and think. And that changes about every 20 years as a new generation comes of age. And I want to try and map out some dominant trends of some past and, and current cultures and then speak to that. But the 40s and 50s, the people that came of age in the 40s and 50s, the dominant kind of thing that many would say for them was tradition or duty or loyalty. Uh, and uh, maybe we can just put that here, duty or, or whatever, is, is kind of the, the way it expresses itself. So um, let's just say 40s and 50s, sorry, 50s. And it was a, we all kind of know it, it was the greatest generation, uh, if, you, if you read the books and watch the movies, and there's an unbelievable amount, I mean, there's just a, a real deep sense of communal virtue that came out of that generation. Then you have the, the people that came of age in the 60s, in 70s and, and I would say, you know, maybe 80s too. And this is the boomers and it's kind of the consumer generation. And the dominant virtue here or value is choice. It's a fascinating thing. I've been studying a lot on consumerism um, just because we all kind of, you know, there's these things that we all kind of talk about or know, and we, we, but we, we don't really study them because, you know, it's so on the surface and so obvious. But then when you study them, you're just like, wow, that's really crazy. And one of the things we think is we're Americans, we've always been kind of consumeristic. It's just a part of the culture or the DNA of America. And, and it's not that it has always been that way. Consumerism is something that was built into culture very intentionally. And I want you, I want to read something to you by a guy by the name of Victor Lebeau in the early 1950s. And this is a, just an excerpt of a much longer document that was a report written uh, to the government basically on what we need to do to, to keep fueling the economy uh, because, because what? In the 40s, we, we finally came out of this huge Great Depression that had rocked the whole country scared everybody to death and really um, fractured our sense of confidence that we can really thrive, right? So this, this whole decade-long depression and the, uh, the Second World War brings us out of that. And so it's fresh in our memory, this depression. And coming out of this, this war, one of the things that brought us out of that depression is our output. We, ran, we all know this story. We ramped up production to such an unbelievably high degree that there's no way that, that Germany could have lasted or anyone else could have competed with our output um, in production, manufacturing output. And so you see this incredible output, and then you also get men home from war, and a lot of women begin to stay in the workplace. And so you've got the need to employ all these people, and if you don't keep allowing for all this output, what's going to happen to the economy? I mean, the government was buying all of the production for war. And now that the government isn't going to buy all the production for war anymore, and you've got all this output, 
what do you need to sustain this level of production which keeps the whole thing turning? There's a lot of whispers. Someone just say it. Consumers. Listen to this. Early 1950s, high-level thinking going on here. Listen to this. This is what, what LeBeau writes. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into our rituals. That we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status or social acceptance of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food serving, and his hobbies. We have to make it the very meaning of the significance in our lives. He goes on in the next paragraph to talk about these commodities and services must be offered to the consumer with a special urgency. We require not only forced draft consumption, but expensive consumption as well. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. There was competitions in the 50s with uh, engineers on how to figure out and create the, the terminal point of a consumer good, the point where it would break, fall apart, such that it would need to be replaced, but that that, that, that tipping point needed to be just far enough that it wasn't going to make the consumer disillusioned with the product and not want to buy another one. And so literally competitions to try and figure out how quickly can we make things break and fall apart so that the cycle of consumption will increase. And this whole thing, it didn't always exist. My mom was telling me recently about, I lived in Holland from the time I was three till, I think, seven. And she was talking about having to sneak off at night to the, the commissary, like uh, my dad was in the Navy, and so, you know, if you drive far enough, there's the base and there's the commissary, and she would, she would come back at night so that the neighbors wouldn't see her bringing in bags and bags and bags of groceries, because the Dutch at that point in time had more like college-sized refrigerators, and the Americans would have their refrigerators shipped over with them, and then we'd go buy everything in bulk. And, and the Dutch would go to the market every day and get a half loaf of bread or a loaf of bread, basically what they could fit in a basket on their bike. And I mean, there's a, there's a part to where what we know to be, and I love, I'm, I mean, this, I'm talking about my generation here. I, I mean, I love to consume. I was, I was it's, I mean, it, you'd have to, how do you get that out of me? I was raised in a consumer society. I mean, I loved it because I was raised that way, right? Not by my parents, but by culture. Um, it, it hasn't always been that way. During World War II, it's an interesting thing, the word teenager was coined. It's coined during World War II, why? Because the marketers, the men were, I mean, broad generalizations again, the men were off to war, women were working in factories. Who is shopping? For the first time, who is really sh doing all the shopping? And, and then we have to market to that demographic. Well, what do we call this group of people? Teenagers. And that was, from that moment forward, the dominant marketing demographic. And so most everything these days gets aimed at junior hires or teenagers. It's, it's where all of the best minds in culture and all of the biggest money are going to persuade and manipulate your wants, wishes, and desires such that you would spend your consumer dollars in a certain way. So when you are an adolescent and you come through America, you are shaped as a consumer. But it wasn't always that way.
But the dominant thing of this generation is choice. Um, so now we have, let's call it the 90s and the zero zeros. I don't know. Um, what's the dominant? Is there something wrong? What's the dominant thing of this generation? Is there still something wrong? <laughs> the zero zeros. The, uh, what's the dominant thing of this generation? Bad musical taste, what was that? No, I'm just kidding. Um, That, that's me, and, and I, I, we're better. So we're, we get this little slice. The, the 80s are, 80s. I still remember, you know, there's, I was in the store the other day with my daughters, and it was, it was the craziest thing. It, it's a little, it a little teeny bopper store because my oldest is about to be a teeny bopper, right, in a couple of years. So um, it was all 80s styles. I was freaking out. I mean, it was, I mean, has anyone gone into a store recently and had that experience? I was just like, I, I remember this. It's, it's, it's a foggy distance somewhere back there. Like, this reminds me of something. Um, so this generation right now, it's the inked generation. It's the inked generation. Tattoos and hairstyles that are unique. It's all about finding a way to express yourself that's radically original, different, and unique. The only common thing is the desire to be uncommon, which is a way of being a conformist. I mean, we could go round and round with that, right? But it's, it's so about ownership. It's so about uh, engagement. It's so about authenticity, but, but really individual expression, okay? Now, here's the thing. What's the weakness of tradition when it comes to church? The weakness of tradition, it's a great thing because you're a stayer and you're loyal. The weakness is it's hard for you to change. It's hard for you to accept change, if tradition is really at the core. And so what happened is this generation now comes into these churches and says it's not our style. It's not, it's not packaged for our consumption. It's not, it's not according to our values, our cultural values, or our DNA. And so you see a whole lot of churches crop up that are going to be designed stylistically different. And you see... Uh, these generations go to those churches and you see style and vibe and feel becoming really important. What's the downside of church being based on style? As soon as your kids come up, guess what? Your style is not going to be their style. This is pretty hard to build a tradition out of a style-based church. I mean, the crazy thing is, is they say that music, like your musical tastes are set in adolescence. And that's why you can still see, like you can, you can evaluate people's generation by like what their car radio stations are. You know what I mean? It's like, you'll see some guy in his 50s rocking out to Neil Young and you're like, I can visualize you as a 20-year-old with like long hair and a headband, you know? And, and nothing's changed, you know? And, and you can, you can see people, I, I was, um, I've had Journey on my Pandora radio for like the last four months. I haven't listened to Journey in like a decade, right? But my, I drove around this little Honda Prelude my senior year of high school, and the tape deck, 
Does anyone not know what that is? I can stop and explain it. The tape deck, I had, I had this mixtape, and on one side was Bad Company. Anyone remember Bad Company? And on the other side was Journey's Greatest Hits, and it got jammed for two years. It was, it was Bad Company and then Journey, and Bad Company and then Journey. So when I'm listening to this Journey radio station these days, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm having flashbacks, and I mean, it's crazy. I, I, you know, if I, if, I, if I don't watch myself, I'll, I'll literally think I'm a, like an 18-year-old again. I feel like an 18-year-old. No one buys it. Okay. Um, but so the problem with choice is as soon as you get the next generation coming along, um, it's not their style. But this is a great church. Love it. Don't you love the music? Uh, no, actually, I don't. Well, what do we do then? What's, what do we center it on? Now, if, if we centered it on kind of consumer choice, whatever. So what's the weakness of individuality and individual expression? The weakness of that is it is so anti-institutional to the core. This generation is to the core because of individual expression, anti-institutional. Institutional means all together like one, all together um, kind of with the same veneer and label and, and, and kind of, it's like the Borg. You get assimilated. You know there's a lot of churches that have a pastor whose title is the assimilation pastor? I, 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 that used to be my title once upon a time at a different church. But that, that's like the goal of an institution is to assimilate right? It's to unify, and out of the many, one. The hard thing for this generation is they get the many, they get the diversity, but then the whole one part, where, where we're in a hierarchy, in an authority structure, where, where there's, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the tension. And so, you get a difficult thing with this generation with change. You get a difficult thing with this generation that they're centering something or there's a tendency to center something as a consumer. And then we get to this generation and the whole thing, the, the wheels kind of come off in the sense that the, the idea of a corporate church begins to not compute. And so, fascinating thing is that as we trace where church is going, it's, it paints a kind of really interesting picture. It paints an interesting picture. We take something that consumerism is all about self and gratifying self and tailoring to self and we make it a centering part of our Christianity in this generation. I have a friend who's going to be here in a couple weeks, Nathan George. He does a ministry called Trade is One. He's a Brit. And he moved here to start this because he just felt really burdened by this whole idea. And he goes around and talks to, he has a, a whole fair trade company that's the third largest, I think, internet distribution of, of fair trade goods. And he gets, he gets really disillusioned because he goes and talks to pastors in this realm and says, we got to talk about consumerism because making everything about self is not the gospel, right? It's in, in some sense maybe 180 degrees out from, from where we should be. And the answer he, he gets from, from this generation of pastors a lot of times is, Nathan, you're trying to swim upstream. We use consumerism to get the message out about the gospel. See, where you're going wrong is, we can give people all that they want, make it all about them so that they'll come and then we can tell them about Jesus. And, and it's really hard for, I mean, I mean it's going to be fun to hear Nathan speak to this, right? Um, so you get an interesting thing going here and then with this individuality thing, you get an interesting thing and the whole thing, you, you begin to go, where should it be? Where should it be? Where are we? So what I wanted to do is just kind of frame that and say, which of these generations is right and which one's wrong? 
I don't think any of them are right or wrong. I think all of them express cultural values that are worldly cultural values. Not wrong cultural values, but they're ones that came up with your generation. They're ones that were shaped into you by our culture, by our tribe, by the herd. And what we have to do as Christians in this church is try and drive down and say, what is true? What is universally true? What is the culture of God's church supposed to look like? What is true even if it doesn't fit tradition? What is true even if it doesn't fit felt needs? And what is true even if it asks me to submit to a hierarchy or an authority? What is true? So turn to Acts with me if you would. Book of Acts in the New Testament. And I want to show you where we got the name for our church. Because the fascinating thing, we're in a two-week series on creating culture. And the fascinating thing about a church plant is with a church plant, you get to stop and go, what should the culture look like? And it's, it's this incredible opportunity to say, we aren't inheriting a culture of, of a particular church that we have to try and look at or speak into. We're actually starting and we get to think about what kind of culture are we going to create. Everything we do is new, and so, so planting a church is a phenomenal thing when you think about it. It's an opportunity to just put your finger down and say, what, does, what should this look like? And what, what is this going to look like? How are we going to create and shape culture? And so in Acts 11, you see a phenomenal passage grow up here. Now, if you remember, Jesus left, and he said, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, meaning you're going to go. Pack your bags, you're going to travel. My desire for my witnesses is that they would be mobile witnesses. They would be traveling witnesses. It's going to spread and it's going to go. And what began to happen is it stayed static. The, the, there weren't any wheels on, on the vehicle. It was just the box and it stayed static. And and. Endless dialogue and endless issues and endless needs. And, and it's all very real and all very important. But it's so easy for a community to turn in on itself and get completely absorbed with its own needs that it doesn't go. And so persecution comes. And most every theologian looks at the narrative of Acts and believes that Luke is showing us that, that God brings about persecution to kind of drive us out where we might not be wanting to go or where we wouldn't have gone otherwise, that, that, that he scatters us. And so in Acts 11, we see this, beginning in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. What does that mean? means that you had a bunch of Jewish dudes in Jerusalem that were, were trying to work this thing out, and, but they weren't going anywhere. So God brings persecution, and now they're scattered. And so they're going to other towns throughout Israel. But when they go into those towns, what they're doing is they're going only to their own ethnic or cultural or affinity or familial, you know, kind of their cousins. They're going to the Jews only and exclusively. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. You see examples in the New Testament, of Peter being called to Cornelius, the, the, uh, kind of the Roman general's kind of house. And you see Philip, the evangelist, having this chance encounter with this Ethiopian. You see God taking an evangelist specifically to a person here or there. But the very first time ever in the New Testament age that you see 
the, the strategy and intentionality of witness going to all people, the very first time you see it being inclusive of all men, women, regardless of race or ethnicity, the very first time that's intentionalized is in Antioch. That's huge to me. It's one of the very first reasons why we took the name Antioch is that hopefully we don't build a church on our own cultural style or our own kind of um, affinity group and we begin to make it about us and, and lose sight of the idea of witness. But to the first time you see the men from Cyprus and Cyrene go to Antioch and begin to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And because of this, a whole lot of people come into the Lord. News reaches the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who later was Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So you have this situation grow up now where you've got Paul and Barnabas for the first time in a, in a context where to incarnate the gospel, to live out this witness, creates an awkward tension because Jews weren't supposed to fellowship with or eat with Gentiles. It's not the cultural tradition. So what do you do? And so for the first time, they, 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 they go, well, what are we? And so they actually wrestled with it, wrestled with it, and then sent to Jerusalem. And, and the elders meet in Jerusalem, and they talk about it. And the realization in this was, you know what? We're going to value relationship over tradition. Unity, the ability to take Gentiles and Jews and bring them together and be one body. There's neither... Jew nor Greek, man nor woman, slave nor free man, Paul would write later in Galatians, that we're going to be one. And, and so they go, you know what? More so than tradition or cultural norms, we're going to value relationship. And grace triumphs over the law. So this law or this way of doing things that would separate us out, grace now changes that. And so they speak to it. And they say, what is true about the gospel? What is the kind of culture that we're going to create, that we're supposed to create? It's fascinating. So now turn, if you would, uh, over in Acts, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, Paul's now on his missionary journey. And he gets to Thessalonica, and in verse 5, we see this. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some good. They began to see it as competition between them and their influence and Paul and his influence. And so they were jealous. Very human emotion. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. And they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. How did uh, the religious leaders get Jesus crucified? Who, who carried out the corporal act of punishment. It's the Romans, right? Why would the Romans carry this death sentence out against Jesus? Because of insurrection. He was accused of claiming to be a king. 
And because of that, it all of a sudden gets the Romans involved. And, and the Romans tend to be hands-off in these provinces until someone challenges or begins to incite the, the local people to possibly follow or have allegiance to another king. And then they step in and they deal with it ruthlessly. And you see the same thing going on here. They're saying, hey, guess what? Guess what's going on? These guys are talking about another king. It's like the button that you can push with the Romans, right? And when they heard this, when the city officials heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. And so what we see is this. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Because if they were going to stay there, they were going to be killed. And so they're living under this very real threat of death and, and being at any moment taken by the mob. And so as soon as it was night, they were sent away to Berea. And on arriving there, they went directly to the Jewish synagogue because they never stopped. And now the Bereans, it says in verse 11, chapter 17, were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And then many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. What really ultimately is beneath our decision to receive teaching or to receive truth or to receive a culture or to receive and follow and respect leaders is not style. It's not how it fits or meshes with my felt needs or my, my likes. It's ultimately what is true. How do we know what's true? Well, Scripture. Well, don't a lot of people have different opinions on Scripture? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but guess what? The more you study Scripture, the deeper you go with Scripture, the more you see that on the majors, there's agreement. You, you can't just gloss over it and go, wow, well, different people have different opinions and then walk away. The Bereans were of noble character because they drove down and took different teaching than what they were used to and said, does this jive with the scriptures? We really have to check this and weigh it and analyze it and evaluate it. And they deeply pursued it. So the idea is, yes, there's different interpretations, but the more you throw yourself at it and, and really try to search it out, there's always been this understanding that in that you will be able to evaluate and find truth. You'll be able to see what harmonizes with Scripture. There are themes and trends all throughout Scripture. One of the great principles of the Reformation was this. How do you interpret Scripture? You do it through the lens of other Scriptures. Scripture talks about Scripture, and Scripture follows up on trends and themes and prophecies. And when you begin to take the full, what's called the full counsel of God, you begin to say, wow, this is what was spoken about in the prophets. Or this is what it looks like when we go to the law instead of grace. Or this is what it looks like when we give vent to our own human wants, wishes, and desires and begin to not see that God loves all people. Or that love isn't just loving those who love you. Love is actually sacrifice whether people deserve it or not. I was talking with Tamara yesterday and I was this interesting thought. That the idea of your enemy, if you think of your enemy, necessarily puts you in relationship with your enemy. The minute you define somebody as enemy, it puts you in some sort of proximity with that enemy, right? It, it puts it under the umbrella of relationality. Now, albeit a bad, dysfunctional, hurtful relationship. But it's under the umbrella of related to, namely, that person is related to me as enemy. And so because it's under the umbrella of relationality, the interesting thing is we're coached in Scripture to fight it or to respond to it with right relational principles. So do not return wrong for wrong, says Paul. Peter says, honor everyone. Not just the people honoring you, honor 
everyone. Jesus says, pray for and love your enemies. And in that, here's what I realized. It's, it's been tripping me out, but enemy is some, somebody under the umbrella of relational principles. They're related to you. You're supposed to handle it with right relational principles. What that teaches me is that all relationships have the possibility or potential for redemption. All relationships, even the worst one in your life, is redeemable. Even Paul says, if you treat your enemy in a certain way, it's as, it, as if you're shaming them or pouring burning coals on their head and they kind of go, you know what? This isn't fun being an enemy anymore. It actually is making me feel awkward. I just need to put this down or be willing to reconcile. Or All relationships, even the worst, from a Christian standpoint, is redeemable. What, what did that have to do with anything? It had something to do with something. Um, I don't know how it fits this diagram, though. So the idea is beneath all of this, it's not the style, and it's not how it feels, and it's not what's culturally acceptable, but we're going to go search the Scriptures and find the themes and find what's true. And then we come to this and we say, well, what about the hypocrisy of church? What about the empire building? I lead this church. I have a, a high degree of influence. I get to make a lot of decisions that affect this church. I waited almost a decade, though, to start this church, even though I'd been, I felt God calling me to do it when I was 25, I waited almost a decade because this was the whole thing for me. I wanted to do it the right way. What was the right way? I saw a lot of people, and I saw in myself the desire to just pop out of the structure, call my own number, and just do the thing. Because, you know... Pastors in this generation, they, they, they don't change fast enough, right? And I've got my own style and way of wanting to do it. And so there's this real desire to just pop out and just plant a church. But I looked, I was studying, I remember I was in seminary and I was going through the Old Testament and I saw this unbelievable contrast between Saul and Paul. Saul was in all ways the right pick for a culture, um, a guy you look at, and he's the stature and the size, and you know what I'm saying? I mean, he was just in all ways the right kind of guy, but he was incredibly impatient always, and so he's about to do battle, and as he's about to do battle, he's got to wait for the prophet of the Lord to come and bless the battle so that they, they have the blessing of God, and there's skirmishes kind of going on on the edges. Things are not going well. The prophet's long in coming, and Saul begins to get afraid and say, I can't wait for God's timing. I got to do it, and I got to do it now my way, and so what he does is he does the sacrifice himself, and he rushes the whole thing. And then another place, all the guys are going to go crazy. And he's like, but they want to loot the town. God said, don't loot the town. Um, but you know what? I'm going to just stand back and let it happen because ultimately this will be good for morale. They'll, they'll all get their loot. And so I'm just going to call an audible here. And, and in all of this, God finally sends the prophet and says, um, I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hands and give it to another. And remember what, what, what Saul does here? Did I call him Paul earlier? Remember what Saul does here? And he says, uh, he says, oh my gosh, really? Okay, well just don't tell the men. Because I gotta guard my image here. And what's gonna happen to their allegiance if you tell them that I'm under like a curse instead of God's blessing? Just, just don't tell any grasps at the cloak of the prophet, and it rips, and, and, and the prophet just says, just like that, God is going to rip the kingdom from your hands. Saul was 
never waiting on the Lord, never submitting to a higher idea of culture and how God's kingdom is supposed to be framed. And so God goes and he finds David. And David was messy. He had a messy life. He had a messy family. But there's something interesting about David. He goes to David and the kingdom's going to come to David. And he tells him, at this age, you're going you're gonna to get this calling. But, it, but he doesn't get to be king right then. Has that ever tripped anybody else out? Like, he was anointed to be king here. But it's like a decade or, or more before he ever becomes king. Like even longer than that. And Saul stays king. I'm always like, I thought anointing meant, no. Anointing meant this is God's plan. But David stayed in submission to King Saul. He worked for, for King Saul. And then when King Saul began to see the handwriting on the wall, he got jealous and David ran for his life. And so David's even at the worst of the worst, hiding in a cave. And Saul comes in to go to the bathroom. I mean, I, I love scripture, right? Saul comes in to go to the bathroom, and he stays for a little while. It's in scripture. And as he's sitting there, David's in the back of the cave where it's dark, and he could have easily killed Saul. And Saul leaves, and then they can finally talk again, not give themselves away. And they're like, why didn't you kill him? And here's the great irony. Here's another irony of scripture. He cuts a little bit of Saul's cloak to let him know that he was there and that he could have killed him. What was the prophecy about Saul? I mean, it's amazing. So David's doing this some way in submission to God. And so they say, well, why didn't you just kill him then? You're already anointed as king. And David says, far be it for me to raise my hand against God's anointed. Translated, when it's God's timing, then he'll see, foot, uh, see, fit, uh, see fit to make me king. Finally, he's out running, and again, same scenario with Saul. He's in a city, and the city's kind of exposed, and Saul's men are coming. They found out that David's in there, and the longer he waits, the greater the chance of them encircling the city and trapping him. What's, what's the logical human thing to do? Cut and run right away. You can't waste a minute. And David says, nope, we're going to seek the Lord first. And he slows everything down and he, God, should we stay or should we run? And, and he does, I mean, so illogical. He, he, he submits and he waits and he says, in your timing, God, your answer, that's what I'm going to follow. And I saw this and I, I, I remember going, this is not my personality but I want to wait until it's the right time to plant a church. And what that means, according to Scripture, is a board of elders lays hands on you and sends you out with the blessing of the Lord. And so I remember being 34 and it was actually happening. And I was like, geez, God, a decade? Like maybe, and and I'm, now I'm over the hill. Like all other church planters are like 25 and I'm like 34 with three kids and a schizo dog, Right? <laughs> How is this going to happen? And I remember, I remember feeling this unbelievable, clear message from God. And when, if, the more you pray, I'm sure you've, you've le learned this, realized this. God's not a man of many words. When, when you do hear kind of a word from the Lord, it's, it's usually few words. And I remember hearing God going, oh, really? Really? Age is what matters to me? Like, your age as the leader is what's true? Or what this is anchored in? Or what this is, like, really going to find its source of, of strength? Or You know what I'm saying? Really? Huh. Interesting, Ken. And I was kind of like, you know, because usually when you hear from God, that's the reaction. It's like, oh, sorry. Um. But I wanted to be in, I'm not a submissive guy, but I'm in submission to, to a board of elders. I wanted to be in submission to the process. I want to be in submission to, to scripture. And so as much as I, I also want to just be free from the bonds of community, I want to be in submission to God's plan for his kingdom. And God's plan A has always been 
the church. I don't think God will go to a plan B. I don't think he needs to go to a plan B. But the institution that has existed from the very beginning and still exists. By the way, when, when Jesus was asked this trick question about uh, a woman married multiple times, whose wife is this going to be when she gets to heaven? Trick question. Jesus said, that institution doesn't carry into heaven. There's not going to be marrying and burying. There's certain things that won't exist when we get to heaven. But you know what will, what institution will carry all the way into heaven? It's the deepest institution we know right now in life. Do you know what that is? The church. The body of Christ. The bride of Christ. Not only is it going to carry into heaven, but in, in Revelation there's this imagery almost as, as it shows up in heaven as a bride and Christ is going to like marry. It's this celebration of, of this institution coming into heaven. It's going to come into heaven. The church is going to come into heaven with a head of steam. So if you can, turn to Romans right after the book of Acts. Romans, verse three, uh, chapter 12, verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. What does that say about self-expression? Don't define yourself by it. Don't define yourself by your ability to de differentiate or distinguish so that you're higher than all others. Don't be in this, this mad rush to be a unique particular. Don't think more highly of yourself but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. You belong to him. And then verse four, just as each of you has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Whatever is credited to you as good is also credited to me as good through you. Whatever I have that is good is also, not just for my own differentiation, but hopefully credited to you as a blessing and as good. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern di diligently. And if it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you will. Ephesians 4. Unbelievable passage Paul writes on unity in the body of Christ. We'll start in chapter 4 and maybe skip a couple verses, but Ephesians 4 in the New Testament. As a prisoner of the Lord then, I belong to him. My life is not about me differentiating myself. It's about being in relationship and being defined by my relationship with Christ. So we, we get something wrong about faith. We, we act like, are you in the faith? Like faith is this like sphere of standing in or standing out. Faith is a, a verb. I live by faith. It's this active, willing connection of kind of trying to hold on to Christ and saying, I'm blind, I can't necessarily see all that you're doing, but wh where I sense you going, I will follow. I'm going to live by faith, and, and it's going to take me where you want to take me, and it's going to bring about the kind of values and decisions and priorities you want from me. It's not like, oh yeah, I'm in the faith. I'm a Christian, you know. I got the latest pop culture, whatever. Instead of having a leather Bible, I have like a hard case Bible with camouflage. And I, you know how Bibles, I mean, change covers? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like hey, we all in the faith together. No. It's not a club that way. It's a relationship that defines me. And Paul 
better than anybody talks about this. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is it like for us to get beyond our culture and live a worthy life according to God's kingdom priorities for us? And, and it says this, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. And when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and the Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us. So here's all of us together. Okay? But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed him. And then if we skip down... It says this, verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. What, what, I just want to stop for a second. What has Christ called you to be for and to his body? What role do you play? Do you know? Is it clear? Is it something you pray about? I believe this is some. I, I was never taught this. Like it's like getting a spiritual gift is like some weird me, uh, mechanical process. At some point, you just get stamped with, and you know, and everybody only gets one. You know, where does it say you only get one? Where does it say it's one forever and ever? What about when you get to a season where you're like, God, I can't do what you've asked me to do with what I got. I need you to gift me with something that will enable, enable me to be successful in what you've called me to do because in and of myself, I can't do it. I think we should pray about spiritual gifts. I think we should believe that we can have more than one. I think we should believe that when we come to a season, we can ask, give me the gift of mercy. Give me humility. Give me the ability to pray with faith, whatever it is, so that I can be useful for you and what you have me to do for your body that you want unified. Do we wrestle with gifts? I mean, do we hunger for it? I think Christ honors those who, who aspire to have more gifts that we can be more useful for his community and his family. I think that's a good kind of aspiration. Paul talks about if you aspire to be an elder, it's a good kind of aspiration. There's, there's good ambition in that because your motives are pure. So he says he gives some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness of Christ. And then it skips down and says this in verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So to the 20-somethings, I say, with all that creative energy and all that drive and all that innovation, how are you leveraging it for the institutional church? Don't use it as a reason to push the church away. Don't use it as a reason to get out of community or to say that there's no value to this thing. Certainly this thing needs to be reformed and redeemed and constantly evaluated so that we can purify it and hopefully let it be in love with Christ as the head for sure. But just because the cultural value is individual expression and ownership, don't go find that by walking away from church. How do you find that in serving the church? Those unique talents and gifts and abilities you have, how can you leverage that to bring this thing more and more together to steward your influence with the 10-year-olds so that when they look at you, they don't want to walk away from the church, they want to walk deeper into the church. There's something fascinating going on with this generation. More than any generation on record, recent record, since the 50s, there was an explosion of Christianity in the 50s, the Eisenhower years, and the Cold War. Do you know that the, the dollar bill, it was in the 50s that Congress put In God We Trust on the dollar bill? In the 50s. 
There's an explosion of Christianity, but never since then has there been a bigger drop-off than right now with the 20-something generation. The number of 20-somethings that say they believe in God is at an all-time low. Every, every, I mean, I've been hearing this now for four years, five years, every single thing you read about studying the 20-somethings talks about the alarming rate at which Christian young people are leaving the church. Anywhere from 70 to 80% leaving the church. This is huge. If we don't think that's going to completely reshape everything about what we know in 10 years from now, we've got our heads in the sand. It's fascinating. If you look at Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone was, was started originally as, as ex-slaves that, that supported the British and, and then were kind of kicked out of the country and they started a town called Freetown. And then more and more ex-slaves were able to come to, the, to Freetown. And when the modern missions movement began in Africa, when there was hardly any Christians in Africa, this was the bastion of Christianity with almost everyone in that region of Sierra Leone being Christian. Unbelievable. And then you see this explosion of missions throughout the continent, and one of the prime jewels of the modern missions movement in Africa, the example that missiologists were using about the success was this wonderful, beautiful little land of a thousand hills called Rwanda. And what do we know about Freetown and Rwanda in recent history? If we just assume because there's been a culture of Christianity that, that life will always be shaped the way we think it will be or should be or could be, and we don't pay attention to the fact that everything is changing. I mean, hugely changing. If we think those numbers are just numbers, then we're, then we're missing the seismic shift that's going on underneath our feet. And in this whole change, radical change, we need to step back and say, holy cow, God, what is going on? What do we need to look like, be like, talk like? What do we need to do and act? What do we need to value? What is true? And if the church is going to be smaller, that's okay. We just need to make sure we're anchored to you. If this is a pruning going on, if this is a persecution or a scattering, okay, but I want more than style right now. I want more than tradi uh, tradition right now. I want more than my own individual expression right now. I want to know that I'm really where you want me to be because it's all changing. Something Karl Barth said after World War II, fascinating theologian, conservatives think he's liberal, but the funny thing is, is he was a conservative trying to answer liberals, you know, I mean, back in his own thinking of what he was talking about. But listen to what he says about the church. This is 1948, and he was talking about uh, the articles, No Christian Marshall Plan. And he says this, What objection could we really make if it should please God to carry his work onward and reach his goal, not through a further numerical increase, but through a drastic numerical decrease of so-called of so Christendom? We're, we're Americans, so we always think new and up, right? I mean, we always think, and, and this question's fascinating. What if God wants to further his work, not through a numerical increase, but through a drastic numerical decrease of so-called Christendom? It seems to me the only question in this matter is, how can we free ourselves from all quantitative thinking, all statistics, all calculation of observable consequences, all efforts to achieve a Christian world order, and then shape our witness into a witness to the sovereignty of God's mercy, by which alone we can live a witness to which the Holy Ghost will surely not refuse his confirmation. And so as we're trying to wrestle with this institution and say we're all coming together and being united as we pursue scripture and try and go deeper, one of the things we realize is we have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. We absolutely have a ministry in the church and we absolutely have a mission in the world as witnesses. And so every Christian, every person at Antioch should have a ministry in the church, the gifts, 
the talents, what you have to contribute and edify the body and a mission in the world. How is God calling you to be a witness to truth and his sovereignty in this culture and in this day and age? This is why we kind of came up with a de facto mission statement. And you've probably heard me say it before, but we want to be, this is kind of our de facto mission statement. We want to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon. And to have a shaping voice in global Christianity. We want to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon and have a shaping voice in global Christianity. And when we first started talking about that, the response was this. Yeah! Sounds ambitious and it sounds exciting and it sounds fun. And yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's change the world. Here's the funny, ironic thing. We're a church of 500 adults with no money. Yet, we're having a shaping voice in global Christianity. I'm on a Skype call next week with a mega church in Hong Kong that wants to do a justice conference in Hong Kong. Um, Linda is getting invited by uh, Focus on the Family to come speak at a conference on what it means to raise compassionate, mission-minded kids. And they're doing a whole radio show about her and, and putting her in their magazines. Uh, we have interns here, 34 interns from over a dozen, dozen colleges and if, you, if you're hosting one of them, you know these interns are unbelievable. Like, th that doesn't happen. Why, why is that happening? And I could go on with more and more stories. And, and the Justice Conference in Philly is going to be five to 6,000 people. And, and what is just happening with that alone is unbelievable in terms of how it's shaping the language that evangelicals are using to talk about our faith and this, this call to justice because God says it's his footstool and it's his scepter, that it's a universal part of his plan for his kingdom. It's shaping Christianity, crazy. But here's the interesting thing. Now that it's actually kind of happening, the felt impulse is, I don't know that I like that. If that's happening, it must be taking something away from, from what we get. All that, that energy or time is probably being taken away from energy or time spent on my kids. Or on me. What, uh, what about this? And we begin to do this fascinating thing where we pit the one against the other. And now there's this kind of felt like we've got to have a backlash. Even though 90% of our budget goes to within the church ministries. And all of our staff, their primary role is in the church nurturing and discipleship ministries. We, we just begin to act out of fear. Why? Because it's change. Because it... It's not about our consumeristic felt needs. And if we're not the ones at the front of the shaping voice and we get left out in some way, we don't see it as that's my church. I'm a part of that church. We together are going and doing that. And if we get left out, that doesn't really matter to me because I'm not the one doing it. So there's this fascinating thing. And in all of that, we got to look and say... Where is God getting the glory? Is our worship a worship where we come and we praise him here? And then what our worship is our action as we, we go out. I was at this trafficking conference in Santa Cruz about a month ago. And, and it was fascinating, the conversation. And I, I began to try to have these lunch kind of conversations with people. I'm saying, we got to make a distinction. Because everyone was talking about the local church and trafficking. Right? What's the local church going to do? We've got to make a distinction between the church gathered and the church scattered. When the church is gathered, we praise God for his power and his presence. We cry out to God when we feel we need more of his power and presence. And when we go out and the church is scattered, we work for the great causes, and we work to love people, and we work to serve uh, the kingdom values. And as you are serving those kingdom values, our church is serving those kingdom values. As I am serving those kingdom values, you are serving those kingdom values because we are one. Have you ever tried to exhale all the way and then not inhale? You know that little game? You can focus on your exhale or you can focus on your inhale, but the other one's just going to come. 
You know what I'm talking about? You can do it right now if you've never tried. But you, you, you can exhale all the way and then go, but I'm not going to focus on inhaling. The church gathered and the church scattered should be like that. That whichever one we focus on, the other one somehow happens because they necessarily go together. I was going to say something about Kilns College, and we're out of time, so I'm just going to kind of say this. Why does Kilns College matter so much? Because if getting beneath style, getting beneath tradition, and getting beneath unique individual expression is so important, pursuing theology, pursuing learning, pursuing education, if it's so important, where is, where is the outlet for going deeper? A liberal arts education comes from the Latin liber, which, is, which means free. It's where we get liberty. Okay, free. A free man's education back in classical culture meant the development of human potential, the development of your soul, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And vocational training, skills-based training back in classical culture was what the slaves did. It was how you learned the trades to do the work and the development of human potential was reserved for the, the free people, liberal arts education. And so having this small Bible college here is not just for college kids, although it is. It's for all of us to say, if we're really going to have a church that tries to anchor deeper than our culture or our pop culture, we have to have a place where we do study and where we grow and where we wrestle and where we ask questions and where we develop so that we can be a better expression of what this thing is supposed to look like as the, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ. And that college that we do, whether you're going to go and be a part of it or not, it, it's, it struggles and it needs help. And I lay awake in bed sometimes going, oh my gosh, this is like the old-fashioned barn building things. If everyone in our church just rallied, even a tiny bit, just kind of made it a fun group project every now and then, we could flip this thing and get it going so fast, it would be unbelievable. But if we don't value it, and it's just a few people wearing themselves out to the bone, we miss an unbelievable opportunity to, to one, benefit this church community, and two, to have a shaping voice in the next generation of Christians. Unbelievable opportunity. And so today, there's this, there's this thing there, kind of from four to whatever. Just, I, I would ask you to get excited about what we can do together in influencing and impacting and growing and developing and helping turn that college into something that we all get to own, whether we're taking a class or not, because this is our church. Um, let me close in prayer. And next week, I, I promise, won't be abstract at all. It'll be three bullet points on how to have, how, I mean, seriously, how to shape and create culture uh, in your family. Um, which is really fun, frankly, by the way. So next week, three, three points on creating culture in your family. And let's go ahead and close in prayer right now. Father, I do just commit this church to you. I commit the people to you. I commit the hurting people to you. I, I, I ask the people here that have capacity, ingenuity, creativity, resources. I pray that you would gift them even more liberally that they would be able to just serve this body, help shape it, help grow it, help nurture it. I pray in all things we would be humble and submissive to each other, that we would love the idea that we get to be a part of an institution with a legacy and a future. God, this is your church. I pray in all things that even if you have to challenge us or bring persecution, you would force us to go deeper to ask some serious questions on how to make this look the way you would want it to look. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.